Welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of Encompass. Go to encompass-europe.com for free access to all our podcasts today. This is Paul Adamson. I'm in conversation with Sophie Pedder. Sophie Pedder is the head of the Economist Paris Bureau. Uh, her most recent book is Révolution Française, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. Uh, Sophie, first of all, thank you for doing this. And you are widely seen as the foreign journalist who knows Emmanuel Macron best. So before we go into maybe some of the substantive issues in his own entry, I'd like to, put, to ask you about what impression he gives you. You've met him on several occasions. You could link him to do The Economist at the end of last year. How did he come across when you're in his presence? Well, it's interesting, Paul. I think to answer that, I would go back to the very first time I met him, which was in 2012, when he was an advisor at the time to François Hollande, uh, who was the socialist president of France. And uh, at that time, he occupied this sort of second floor, small office under the eaves at the Elysee Palace, and he, he really wasn't known to the wider public. But I was always struck by the sort of engaging nature of having conversations with him, which I, I had re reasonably regularly during his time in that job. And I would say that if you meet him in a one-on-one -on -one situation today, it's exactly the same. You have this impression of somebody who's engaged, who actually listens to questions, who wants to answer the questions, quite unusual for a politician. <laughs> you know, I've interviewed many politicians in different countries and most of them try and avoid the question. He wants to engage in it. So it is, I wouldn't say it's so much charming as a sense of interested in ideas, wanting to engage, wanting to argue back, always pushing back, you know, no but, no but, you know, you could say that but. So trying to sort of have those exchanges with, with you on, on whatever subject, which is quite unusual. Now, obviously, outside those one-on-one -on -one, um, encounters, he has this image of being very arrogant. But what's always struck me has, has been that when you're in that one-on-one -on -one situation, I'm not the only person to say this. Lots of people who've met him or talked to him over the years will say the same. He has that very engaging presence, and it's, it doesn't come across in public. It's one of, one of the mysteries of his presidency. Well, is that part of his, is a problem of his own making? Because he likes to be seen, right, as this rather aloof president, uh, very much in the De Gaulle or even a Mitterrand style, as opposed to the kind of normal presidency of, of uh, François Hollande or even uh, Sarkozy before him. So he, had, he created this kind of persona, no? the kind of aloof president above the fray. I think that's right. You know, when you think back to uh, what he was uh, saying even before he was elected, he had this concept of what he called the Jupiterian presidency. So this was the idea that France, with its um, under its fifth republic, needed somebody who embodied the nation, who had a sort of aura around him, who projected a form of power that wasn't just somebody who's competent at managing, but in some respects spoke for France. And I think that that led him into a posture during those early months that has really come to mark his presidency and is remembered in the public um, mind even today. And that is of this uh, young guy who came across as arrogant, even though I think what he was trying to project was grandeur and gravity mm. and seriousness and something about a sort of dignified presence for France. Um, it comes across or came across as, as haughty, as, as sometimes disdainful, but I think that it was part of his conception in those early months and even before he became elected of what he thought the French presidency ought to be all about.
Right. So it's obviously three years uh, this month since he's elected president of the French Republic. Uh, he finds himself, like all uh, national leaders, in the middle of a corona crisis, virus crisis. What kind of crisis do you think he's having at the moment in terms of his popularity and the public perception of how well or not he's handling the coronavirus crisis? I think that uh, initially there was quite a bounce. Um, you can see that in the polls in terms of his popularity, you know, when he made the first two televised addresses to the nation. One of them was watched by 35 million people. I mean, these numbers are absolutely astonishing. Um, more than watched the French uh, on television anyway win um, the World Cup football. So that gives you a sense of quite people tuned in to watch and there was a there was a bounce on the back of that his poll ratings have been struggling for months now but there was there was a bounce now that has begun to to drop off and i think you know it's partly because france has had a real problem trying to get a grip on the covid 19 crisis and there have been mistakes made there have been mistakes about masks there have been mistakes about tests there have been a sense that uh, you know, the numbers are higher than they ought to have been, given the way the French like to think that they have one of the best health systems in the world and that they spend a lot of money on their health system and that their country is very centralized and ought to be exactly the sort of place that's well uh, prepared uh, for this kind of emergency. So there's been a lot of frustration with that. But I think it's also, um, on here, I think the interesting comparison is with the UK is that the French are very quick to um, criticise in general, you know, l'esprit critique, it's part of the sort of culture of the nation is to, is yeah. to, is to criticise and to debate. And therefore, they tend to give less credit to their governments in any case. Um, in the UK, despite far worse numbers of COVID deaths, really tragically far worse, um, there is still, polls suggest, a lot more credit given to the government for its handling of the crisis. So Macron has suffered from that as well, I think. And therefore, you know, however well he has managed to address people, they uh, look at the results in France, they look at the difficulty they're having trying to find masks, even though they're now um, made public, uh, sorry, they're now made um, compulsory on public transport. Uh, and they and they and they and they criticise Macron for that too. So uh, he he hasn't come out of this in terms of poll ratings as well as as some other leaders have during this the COVID crisis. Right. I watched uh, the, his two main uh, TV broadcasts, the nation, the one you just mentioned, where he talked about nous sommes en guerre, we are at war, then the one a month later or so, where he showed a bit more, maybe uh, almost humility, saying we don't have all the answers. Um, how much How much does he delegate, though? You know, in normal times, as you know, much better than I, uh, French peasants tend to dabble more in, in foreign policy and the outside world rather than domestic policy. And and of course, on a day-to-day -day basis, on television and elsewhere, you tend to see the prime minister, Edouard Philippe, and the uh, the health minister, those kind of individuals. So, is, has he delegated all this, or is he very much pulling the strings behind the scenes? It's interesting to watch, and it's a great question. And a lot of people, a lot of us who watch French politics closely, spend a lot of time trying to work out always the relationship between a French president and his prime minister. It's such a strange uh, constitutional arrangement by the measure of, of many other countries in Europe. Um, I think that what makes this particular relationship quite distinct is Macron's tendency to micromanage right. and his ability to uh, absorb a huge amount of information, but he's also his desire to be on top of everything. Um, there's always been this slight aspect to him of sort of top of the class. You know, he's uh, he, he soared through school, through um, his back, through all his various degrees that he's got. 
uh, including two postgraduate, different postgraduate degrees, um, with huge amount of ease. And there's a sense that he wants to understand better than everyone else everything he, he, he's faced with. Uh, you saw that, just to give you an example, you saw that at one point a few weeks ago when there was um, some debate about a um, virologist in Marseille who was promoting the use of hydrochloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19. Now, most people would allow their health minister or their, their officials to do the research on what that meant, but no, Macron was on the plane, uh, flew off to Marseille and met, met with him. <laughs> Um, and that gives you a little sense, I think, of quite how much he wants to get in, involved in the detail. Now, obviously, in terms of communication, he's still doing the sort of big picture speeches, the, an effort to sort of bring the nation together, to provide some hope at the end of all of this for, for a return to normality. And most of the detailed uh, communication on uh, what return to work means has been left to his prime minister. But the, the bottom line is that Macron is someone who doesn't delegate easily and still wants to be um, on top of all the detail and and, to, and, and and in the end to micromanage quite a lot of it. Okay, well, as we move into maybe the, the, the European, the EU part of this little uh, conversation, Sophie, let's talk about his reflexes, uh, certainly in the, in the first phases of um, coronavirus, COVID-19, when pushback, if, if you don't agree, that he showed, seemed to show the same reflex as many other European leaders in terms of saying this is a national problem and we'll, put, uh, we'll impose barriers, we won't allow export of certain medical supplies to other countries, we'll close our national frontiers, and so on and so on. So he had, at the end of the day, when push came to shove, the same kind of uh, nationalistic reflexes as other European leaders. True or not? I wouldn't use the word nationalistic. I think that, um, you know, even in terms of uh, official competence and mandate at the European Union level, the, the, the Commission has never had a role uh, overseeing a health policy. It has always been left to nation states to run their own health systems. So it's, you know, it, in a way, it's a natural instinct. Um, one of the things that, uh, and yes, of course, up to a point, there has been, it's been each country to his own, and the French have been uh, no better or worse than, than others in that respect. If you look at some of, I think that was an early, an early um, instinct. If you look at what happened then at the worst of the crisis, I think that you did see some effort to share the burden. And in that respect, I think France was really lucky and was to lean on some of its neighbours who were able to take in intensive care patients. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Germany, Switzerland, Luxembourg, which all of which took in uh, intensive care patients who couldn't be uh, catered to or, or, or hospitalized in, in the eastern France where they had, uh, an, uh, that was where the earliest cluster of cases started to overwhelm the health system. So, you know, there has been, yes, a sense of each to his own during the crisis, even in Europe. And it's, I think, been quite uh, sobering to a lot of pro-Europeans to realize what, what, how, quite how far that was the case. But there have also been little pockets of examples like that where Europeans have tried to help each other out over this crisis. So picture's a bit, little bit more mixed, and I, I, I really wouldn't qualify it as, as nationalistic, but uh, you know, perhaps relying on your, your own ability to resolve things more than, more than you would for other, other issues. 
Okay. Well, at the uh, in your interview you did with him in I think November last year, uh, and obviously since then, and in saying that Europe is really at a going through an existential moment, it's sort of crossroads that cliche, um, and it now is a time for for Europe really to take a grip of itself and see what it's what it's what it's for, basically, not just what it's doing. What is the purpose of the European Union? Uh, when you interviewed him back in November, were you were you taken aback by the kind of the strength of almost of emotion he was expressing even then for? Five months ago, uh, pre-coronavirus crisis, that uh, Europe needed to "quote unquote" get its act together. Yes, I think so. Um, I'm on, on the cover that when we put that interview on the cover of the Economist in last November, we put the, the quote from him was "Europe is on the precipice." So he was very much stressing that this was a moment for Europe to take stock, wake up, and realise that it had to get his act together. And I think that uh, in, obviously he didn't have the COVID pandemic in his mind and couldn't have, uh, but he was looking at, he, he'd just come back from China. Uh, in fact, I went with him on that trip to China and it was, again, it's, an, it, it, it's part of that uh, sort of sweeping vision I think he has of the way the world's moving. He's very conscious that China is, uh, you know, seeking to be the dominant power player uh, at this part in the 21st century that America has been in retreat uh, and that has dates back pre-Donald Trump uh, and that Europe is caught between these two forces in a way that either it gets its act together, comes together, uh, unifies around a vision where Europe can actually act as a both a sovereign entity but also as a sort of geopolitical power or it risks being squeezed between them. And I think that he was trying to make that case beforehand, before the pandemic. Now, obviously the pandemic has accelerated that uh, sense of Europe's existential moment in Macron's mind. And some of the points he was already making, so these would be about European sovereignty in terms of industrial production. He was very concerned at the time, like late last year, about 5G uh, networks and not relying on uh, foreign powers uh, or foreign uh, companies, rather, to construct 5G networks. He was also concerned uh, about, obviously, about the de defence and security issues. So this, I think, if anything, this pandemic will have accelerated and accentuated that sense that Macron has that Europe is really at a very key moment, that it could fall apart, that it could all start unravelling, or this could be exactly the crisis that Europe needs to, to, to move forward and, and, and swing behind a, a much more kind of geopolitical vision. Well, on that point, the crisis that Europe needs, obviously, all leaders, including Macron, are obviously taken up hugely by the, the, the issues surrounding the coronavirus crisis. But do you think he has a, a plan or a strategy uh, to, to make, leverage the, this crisis in, in, into his direction? Is he going to work more hand in hand uh, with Germany, making that Franco-German engine uh, get back into life again? Or is he going to work with other member states? Do you have any inkling of how he's going to leverage the situation? I'd make a couple of points, I think. The first is that um, you mentioned the word humility earlier. If, if you look at what he's been saying recently, he uses this word all the time. Uh, I think he's very conscious that the, uh, you know, we, we don't really know what the future shape of the world is going to be, let alone Europe, let alone France, uh, that we're looking at, a, at all sorts of shifting forces and factors that we can't understand yet. Um, so I don't think he's... In my, to my mind, as far as I can tell, has got an absolutely kind of clearly worked out game plan. 
The second point, though, would be I don't think he would change what he has tried to do in Europe and the ways in which he's tried to achieve um, some of those ambitions. I mean, I wouldn't say they've worked hugely well, but the starting point for him has always been to work with Germany. And it's been frustrating. I can remember interviewing him in July 2017. So that was just a couple of months after his election. And he was so he was new to the Elysee Palace. And what, I, what, what really struck me was he was already impatient uh, with the pace of progress uh, in the discussions with Germany. Well, three years on, you know, the, the, that pace, impatience is still there. It's, if anything, worse. But it is still the starting point, and every French president knows this, and France uh, and, and Emmanuel Macron know, know, know more or less than any other that you can't get anything to work in Europe unless you work with Germany. Now, Having said that, because of the frustrations, he's obviously, I think, tried to work out other sorts of alliances that can help him either put pressure on Germany or, or bring Germany in a direction that he wants. Um, and he's been made an effort before the COVID crisis, at least, to, to travel uh, more to, to Central and Eastern Europe, which he, French presidents have pretty much neglected in the past. Um, but I don't think that in his mind, as far as I can tell, there's any other real way to get things to move in Europe than to keep, keep, keep working with Germany. Okay, well, in that interview, I keep talking about it, it had a tremendous impact, your interview with him back in November. Um, I, I listened to it and uh, he came out, of course, with that now extremely well-known phrase when referring to NATO, that NATO was brain dead. I think I could almost hear your jaw drop when he came out with that phrase. Uh, and I repeated it again, I think, if I'm not mistaken, that toward the end of the interview. So it wasn't like a off-the-cuff remark that he maybe would have regretted later. I think it was, in my modest opinion, a deliberate thing to get the attention of people like yourself, and obviously mission accomplished. Were you, were you seriously taken aback by, by not just the use of that, that phrase, but also his very strong criticisms of NATO? Well, if you look at the transcript, you can see that when he used the word brain death of Europe, um, sorry, brain death of NATO, uh, I then pushed the question back. I just repeated the phrase because I was so astonished. You know, the brain death of, of NATO, I questioned Mark, as you could read it in the transcript. Um, so, yes, I was astonished by that phrase. Um, but as you said, I think it was a deliberate, don't forget, this was just before the NATO meeting in London. Um, I think it was part of a, an attempt, very much a sort of Macron-esque uh, style to get the subject on the table. You know, this is a leader who is almost the sort of antidote to, to Angela Merkel, who proceeds cautiously and carefully and doesn't like to rock the boat, um, likes on the whole to preserve the status quo. Obviously, I'm caricaturing a little bit. Macron, on the other hand, is someone who likes to, you know, march in there and sort of throw ideas on the table. There's a sort of fearless, uh, risk-taking nature to his character and to his leadership style, I think. And, you know, he, he, he often behaves as if he doesn't care what other people think because at least he's got the subject out there. And that, that was very much, I felt, what he was trying to do by using a phrase like that. It's, it, it, you know, reverberated around the world and got some, on the whole, pretty uh, negative uh, pushback right away. But I think that with hindsight, uh, the French are pretty pleased that they managed to at least get that subject on the table and to get um, Europeans, at least, thinking about what is NATO's role, but also what is European, Europe's role in trying to think about its own defence.
Right. Well, you said just now that none of us know what, what the world would look like post the crisis, never mind what Europe would look like. So, but I do want to maybe move on this final part of the conversation, Sophie, to, to Macron as an as a international, as, as a world leader, and as a way into that without being too arcane. The French presidency of the G7 last year, in, in broad terms, do you think that the French achieved their, their objectives, that they have a grand plan, what they want to achieve? I know there are limitations that, what, that any presidency of a G7 can accomplish in the course of their, of their presidency. But do you think it was, in broad terms, a successful G7 presidency for France? Gosh, I mean, you know, just mentioning it makes me feel like that was another world, Paul, doesn't it, to you? Um, the G7 in Biarritz, that feels like an age ago, but it was only last <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Um, well, at the time, you know, it was tantalizing in a, in a sense, because what Macron was trying to do, of course, was to organize in some way a, a sort of steps towards a meeting between Trump and Rouhani. That was what it was all about. So right. it was all about the American... Uh, Iranian um, dialogue, trying to start that and get that moving. Um, and I think it was tantalizing because at the time one felt that there really was the prospect that this could happen. Um, it was shortly before the UN General Assembly meetings in New York in September, uh, so there would have been a physical possibility had that all moved forward. And I think Macron did manage to portray himself as a leader who was, you know, dynamic, getting things moving, trying at least to play the role that France has often tried to play, a sort of intermediary, uh, you know, uh, open to the United States, but not a sort of too closely aligned with the United States to be seen as warily by others. Um, and it, it looked as if there was a possibility, and of course it didn't come to anything, and then, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, and all that feels like ancient history. But it does show that there is a possibility, and I think you've seen it even during this crisis with a number of initiatives Macron has tried to, to, to promote, um, notably about aid to Africa, about trying to put money into global funds to, into money for a vaccine. Uh, he believes very strongly in multilateralism and in sort of old liberal order, I suppose, although even that is, is going to be doubtless rethought after this crisis. But it's much more difficult now to do that. And I think, you know, we've got many months ahead of us before we can really see whether he can emerge again as a, as a leader who can, who can play that sort of role. Okay. Well, maybe towards the final part of this chat then. Um, multilateralism, even before the COVID-19 uh, crisis, was under, under attack from many quarters, not just the White House. And I think Macron also, as, as in the past, probably in your presence, expressed frustration with uh, the multilateral order, these organizations which may be uh, uh, acting in a suboptimal, suboptimal manner, such as obviously the United Nations, WTO, even now the WHO. Um, do, do you think that he has uh, a part of this, you know, not, not to waste the crisis, any ideas to, to reinvigorate the multilateral order post-crisis? Uh, post well, I think he already had those beforehand. And I can remember, again, going back to that interview that I did with him in July 2017, so three years ago, he was talking, at the time it seemed sort of absurdly ambitious, but he was talking about the need to... Uh, reinvent the Bretton Woods institutions, so the World Bank and the IMF, um, to try and sort of redraw capitalism, to give capitalism a human face, to try and reinvent roles for those two institutions. So these are things that have been going through his mind for, for a number of years. Um, I, I, I think that is absolutely the sort of thing he's likely to be doing. I can't say for sure that he is thinking these things through, but I'm sure that 
it, it very much fits with the, the sort of thinking that he, he does as a, as a leader and, and in, indeed before he came to office. But, you know, these are really early days and France is still trying to just manage its own crisis. So there's only a limited amount of bandwidth for the, for the sort of thinking about the world after. Uh, I think at the moment, you know, we've still, we've still got a, a lot of deaths in France, a lot of people in, in intensive care and trying to think in a structured way about how to reorganize the multilateral institutions will certainly be something Macron will want to do, um, but whether he and indeed other leaders are, are even ready to start thinking about that is a, is, a, is a very difficult question. I'm not sure that, that we're quite at that point yet. Okay, and a brief comment from me. I noticed in his more recent FT interview that he used the word interdependent at least five times. So I think he's mindful of that, the balance between the more sovereignty maybe uh, one, on the one hand, but also the other hand, recognising obviously the world is increasingly an interdependent place. A final question, Sophie. Um, if this were we're talking about a, a US presidential system, we'd already be talking about the presidential elections, even though they'd be, they'd be two years in the future. Uh, we don't talk about normally French politics, two years uh, upstream in quite those terms. But nonetheless, that despite, every, as you just said, the bandwidth being taken up, obviously, by the coronavirus uh, pandemic, are there signs, do you think, uh, as far as you're aware, that um, Macron is already planning his uh, re-election campaign and strategy? No, it's too early to, to talk about planning a campaign. Um, you know, we're still two years away from that in France, uh, although it's obviously at the back of his mind, as it would be of any, of any leader. I think, you know, this is all going to take a while to pan out. And, you know, we, we, just, we just don't know where France is going to be at the end of this. Um, I think what's interesting, I would say, is that if you look at the polling, and we were talking about this earlier, that you have uh, Macron has been struggling in the last month or so, the sort of second half of confinement. He hasn't come out as well as he did in the first half. Um, but what's interesting, if you look at all the alternatives, they are coming out even worse. So if you look at polling, I was just looking at polling earlier um, that had come out showing uh, Edouard Philippe actually, and the Prime Minister has jumped quite considerably in the polls. Uh, Macron is, 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 is doing okay, but the, 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 the figure who is not doing so well at all is Marine Le Pen. Now, I think that's very interesting because, you know, she is an obvious, um, she's, a, she's a big figure in French politics, and this is in many ways a... a, a the sort of crisis she could have exploited, I suppose, but it's not been, she hasn't been very audible during this, this pandemic. She hasn't managed so far to, to capitalise on, on that. Um, and so I think with the, with, when it comes to an election like this and, and a leader who in the, in the polls looks unpopular, one always has to look at who are the alternatives and is there anyone else out there who looks like a more competent leader? And at this point, it's quite difficult um, to, to identify who that person is. Okay, well, we have to leave it there. Sophie Pedder, thank you very much for your time. Thanks very much, Paul. It's a pleasure.